Yes, you are. You are. Good morning, Russell. Yay, I'm sorry that you had trouble getting through to us, but we'll start now. We have our listening audience ready to find out who you are. Um, You're one of our outstanding guests. You're a legally blind physicist and pioneer in the development of the laser who went on to become one of the world's foremost researchers in psychic phenomena. You are now listening to the International Taz and Paula Show, and I'm Paula. And I'm Taz. Well, Russell Targ has authored and co-authored a number of books on psychic phenomena, including his most recent, Do You See What I See? Memoirs of a Blind Biker. Um, in which he relates fascinating anecdotes about his adventurous life and his many encounters with 20th century luminaries such as Ayn Rand, uh, Alan Greenspan, Alan Alda, and the late chess master Bobby Fischer. And uh, that is uh, actually your brother-in-law. <laughs> and yeah, Fischer was my brother-in-law. Oh, okay. Um, oh, I'm sorry. Well, that's what I meant. Thank you, though, for correcting me. In the 1970s and early 1980s, Targ was also director of the Stanford Research Institute Remote Viewing Program, an investigation into psychic ability secretly sponsored by NA, um, NASA, the CIA, the Army, and other members of the U.S. intelligence community that led to the training of numerous psychic spies during the final years of the Cold War. Wow. Well, today, Russell is a student of spiritual te- of the spiritual teacher, Gangajay. And I have a brand new book that you may not know about called The Reality of ESP, where I talk about the inside dealings that we had at Stanford teaching people how to be psychic. So I just got permission from the CIA to write a book and declassify the work that we've been doing so the reality of ESP, I claim I have a physicist proof of psychic abilities. That is, the evidence is so strong that these, it's statistically overwhelming that psychic ability is real. You can no longer doubt the reality of ESP, but your listeners probably already know that. <laughs> yeah, we, well, we Russell, are. You certainly, <laughs> I was going to say... Um, you, you certainly have not been idle in your life, and what an honor it is for us to have you with us today on the show. Well, I'm happy to be with you and talk about the work that I've been up to. Well, I uh, looked up your books on Amazon, and the, your newest book you just talked about has five stars. People that have read it so far love it. And so. my favorite star comes from Brian Josephson, the Nobel Prize winner in physics. So he was willing to endorse the book, even though I embarrass him by saying we have a physicist proof of psychic abilities. Josephson would still go along with me. <laughs> That's great. Now, uh, what's, you were a remote viewer, and um, you've taught it for years also. When did you start um, actually doing remote viewing? Well, we started our program at Stanford Research Institute in 1972, and Ingo Swan, a New York artist and lifetime psychic, taught us how to do remote viewing. And I'll be teaching that next week uh, at uh, 
Rhinecliff, New York, at the Omega Institute. Where are you located? Well, we're located really close to you, San Jose. <laughs> I see. Well, I'm teaching in upstate New York at, uh, Rhine, at the Omega Institute, and I have a week-long session to show people how to get in touch with their psychic selves, and this will be my last workshop teaching remote viewing. Oh. So I've, been teaching, I've been teaching ESP for 40 years, and I think that's probably enough of that. Oh, that's sad. I was go home and say. study. Go home and study the Dharma. <laughs> so, when you were, uh, were you actually hired uh, at the Stanford Research Center to do remote viewing, or yes, just... I st- I I had a lifetime interest in psychic stuff. And in the spring of 1972, I had a chance to meet with Werner von Braun and Jim Fletcher, who was the chief administrator of NASA, and I pitched a proposal to them that we start a program at Stanford to help astronauts get in touch with their spacecraft. That was my idea. I brought a little ESP teaching machine with me, and von Braun did very well on that. And based on his support and Fletcher's support, uh, NASA decided us to let us have a small program at Stanford to see if we could teach people to be psychic. And I should I should tell you that I've now that this ESP teaching machine is what got our program started. And I've now offered that as a free application for the on the Apple iPhone. So if you oh. go to the App Store, you can download ESP Trainer at no cost and have an ESP teaching machine on your telephone. Oh, wow. <laughs> it offers feedback and reinforcement and shows you how to get in touch with your psychic awareness. So the ESP Trainer is a free gift from me to you. My goodness, what a beautiful gift. Well, I kind of, you know, as a kid, did you find yourself being in tune like this, or was it something that was developed over time, or or what took place on this, Russell? Well, remote viewing, psychic ability is something that we all have. It's a natural ability. We all have ESP, and the reason that there's so many people now teaching it For example, if you go to Google and search for remote viewing, you'll find that there's two and a half million pages dealing with remote viewing on Google. You wonder, how could that be? And the answer is, many, many people have gone to classes to learn how to be psychic, and they found that was really easy. And they have set up shop now teaching remote viewing. It's like teaching somebody to ride a bicycle. Once you know how to ride a bicycle, it's really easy to teach. So more than teaching people how to do something, we're giving them permission uh, to make use of the ability that they already have. So I can can just have a a book signing event at a bookshop, and lately I've been ending my little book talk with a demonstration, not of my psychic prowess, but I tell people I have an interesting object in my box here that I brought with. Quiet your mind and describe the surprising image that comes into your awareness, and then I'll show it to you in a few minutes. And people can do that surprisingly well. 
Now, we have used psychic abilities for all kinds of things. We've Two of the things, when I talk about the proof of ESP, there are two outstanding events in my lifetime that I took part in. One was searching for Patricia Hearst when she was kidnapped in the Bay Area. Patricia Hearst was the daughter of William Randolph Hearst, publisher of The Examiner in San Francisco. And the day after she was kidnapped by the Simeonese Liberation Army, the Berkeley police called us at Stanford and said, can you help us find the heiress? So my partner at SRI, Hal Putoff, another physicist, uh, he and I went together with Pat Price, who was a very psychic policeman, and we went to Berkeley and stood with the detectives in the police station, and Price said, well, give me your mug book. Give me the picture book with photographs of all your recent suspects. And he turned page after page and finally put his finger on the face of one guy and said, that's the ringleader, that's Donald DeVries. He kidnapped Patricia Hearst. And of course, they knew who DeVries was, but they hadn't seen him for a year since he walked away from uh, the pr- prison where he had been. He basically escaped from Folsom Prison, uh, the work camp. Uh, and they said, well, we, we know who DeVries is. Uh, where's the car? Where, where are they now? And Price said, oh, why don't you ask me? Uh, I see a white station wagon about 50 miles north of here. It's parked by a diner across the street from two white gas storage tanks in the pedestrian overpass. And one of the detectives said, well, that's on my way to my house. Uh, North of here, by the Richardson Bay Bridge, I've forgotten the town. What, what What's a town up north? Anyway, and so they dispatched a uh, police car, and 15 minutes called us back, and we found the station wagon. We know it's the right one because there's still cartridges rolling around on the floor that match the ones we had seen an hour earlier on the floor of Patricia Hearst's apartment. So we know it's the kidnap car. Good job. Uh, and we'll see what happens with DeVries. And within a couple of days, DeVries surfaced making demands uh, from the Hearst family to feed the poor in San Francisco. So uh, Price, starting with nothing, just stood in the police station, named the kidnapper, and told him where to find the car. That's one of the most miraculous things that I'd ever seen. You could say that again. <laughs> And so did you do uh, any remote viewing yourself for that case? Uh, I did not do remote viewing for that case. Uh, In in general, I'm teaching remote viewing rather than doing remote viewing. Uh, One of our viewers, Hella Hammett, the very psychic photographer for Life magazine, had been called in to do a, a police. She had been working with the police and they called her to help with a murder in the Bay Area, and she didn't like the vibration. She said she looked in on the murder and didn't like it, and she called me and said, they're standing by, could I help? And, I, and I'm and i a sort of a journeyman remote viewer. I'm not a 
I'm not a great remote viewer. I can do it as well as anybody else, and I have probably more practice because I've been teaching for so long. So I closed my eyes, and I saw a woman lying on the floor and a stocky guy who seemed to be pulling his head off, which was odd to see. And then I realized what he was doing is he was pulling off his wig and putting on a beret on top of his bald head and stuffing his wig in a backpack. And that's what I described, that the that the guy with the dead girl was a completely bald, short, stocky guy. And that info went to the police, and eventually he got picked up as a suspect, and they said, uh, there was an eyewitness who saw you take off your wig and put it in the backpack, and he confessed based on the fact that an eyewitness saw the murder. And of course, I didn't see the murder at all. I just saw him. But because I came in with such uh, on-the-spot information, it scared the guy, and he confessed to the murder. So that was one of the uh, few things that I've done in real time like that, though I have done other uh, remote viewing. We are once were doing a series of long-distance remote viewing. Remote viewing is this ability we have that allows you to see and experience what's going on in a distant place. So you can see into the distance or into the future, and that's why we call this a non-local ability. It's non-local in that it's no harder to see to Siberia than it is to uh, see what's on my desk here in Palo Alto. Similarly, it's just as easy to see what's going to happen tomorrow as it is to describe my hidden object today. So the fact that your psychic ability is independent of space and time is why we call it non-local ability. So one day... uh, Pat Price, who's a great psychic policeman, was describing each day where my partner, Hal Putoff, was as he traveled through South America. He was in the country of Colombia. So each day, Price would say, I see a market or a harbor or a volcano or a church or some kind of thing that you might expect to see in a South American metropolis. And then the next day, day five, he didn't show up. And this was an important experiment for us because we wanted to be able to see, can a viewer describe where somebody is traveling even though we're not getting feedback each day? Viewers like to get feedback after their viewing to bring closure. So this day, Price wasn't there. So I, in the spirit that the show must go on, I said, I'll do it. <laughs> and I said, I see an airport on an island, and there's ocean at the end of the airport. In fact, I see ocean at both ends of the airport, and I made a little drawing of that. And it turned out correctly that they had taken a side trip from uh, Colombia to the island of San Andreas, which is near, it's sort of out in the Caribbean. And Hal uh, Putoff came back with a photo greatly resembling the one that I drew. In fact, I have that in the new book, in the reality of ESP. 
And if people want to see some of these pictures, they can go to my website. The website is ESPResearch.com. So you can see some of the data for remote viewing and what I've been up to. And some, you can leave some videos of people doing remote viewing is on my website. So the website is ESPResearch.com. And if people want to write to me, they can do that as well. Now, you taught the CIA remote viewing, is that correct? Yeah, we did We did a lot of remote viewing for the CIA. Uh, and they sort of tasked us to do look different places. The people we taught were really in Army intelligence. So we set up a psychic Army Corps, like they show in The Men Who Stare at Goats, if you saw that amusing film. So there really, there really was a psychic army corps, and that was at Fort Meade in Maryland, and we taught the people how to do it. And um, so the way it worked is that Ingo Swan taught Hal and me how to do remote viewing. Hal and I taught six people at in Army Intelligence, and they then set up a program that's about 30 people doing remote viewing. And they they have now taught the world, so it's because of the uh, publicity from the people at Fort Meade that there's now two million pages on Google, and we have a meeting every year of the International Remote Viewing Association. That's at irva.org. So we have a amusing amusing meeting every year in Las Vegas of people who are supporting themselves being psychic. So this is not a research meeting. This is people talking about helping the police, locating lost children, uh, making money in the stock market, uh, making money with sports betting. So these are the applied remote viewers, not not the researchers. So I bet there's a lot of amusing stories during those conferences. Oh, yeah. I mean, our, our big contribution was that um, after I left SRI, I created a company called Delphi Associates, and one of our tasks was to forecast changes in the silver commodity market. So each week we would make a forecast whether silver is going up a little, up a lot, down a little, or down a lot. So we're doing uh, forecasting one of four things, and we did that nine weeks, and we were correct every time we made $120,000. That was back in 1985 when $120,000 was a lot of money. And we were on the front page of the Wall Street Journal, and Nova made a film about us called The Case of ESP. And uh, many people have, since we did that, replicated our experiment. So the whole little industry of people using psychic abilities to forecast markets and horse races and all sorts of things. Well, does this work even if there's people on the other end manipulating things? Um, like I've been told gold and silver is manipulated, or if somebody manipulates a horse race, is that all encompassed when you look ahead? I wouldn't say they're manipulated. In the silver market, for example, uh, the Hunt brothers were trying to manipulate it in 85. They were trying to corner it. But we made most of our money selling silver into a rising market. 
So we were we made our biggest hits, our biggest money making trades were selling short into a rising market because for some unknown reason in the week in which we were short the market would fall. So it's <laughs> it's very very hard to control a to manipulate a, a big market like the silver market. We have millions of participants. Well, so I would true. say that uh, uh, the Hunt brothers were trying. Well, the, uh, you picked a good example. Hunt brothers were trying unsuccessfully to corner the silver market. They did not succeed, and they wound up losing a lot of money. I'm, sh- I'm sure there's people out there now that uh, would like to try to manipulate it, just like the Hunt brothers. Well, I tell them just how to do it. They should buy my book, The LAVSP. And I have a whole chapter on what we call associative remote viewing. It's the idea that uh, if you want to be in the silver market, it would be nice if you could read the big board at the commodity exchange, read the numbers. But you can't actually do that because remote viewers are not able to read. Uh, But you can describe what I'm going to show you at the end of the week. So the way associative remote viewing works is the broker each week will choose four different objects. So down on Montgomery Street, the broker says, this week, if silver goes up a lot, I'll show him a champagne bottle. If it goes up a little, I'll show him a Dixie cup. If it goes down a little, I'll show him a book. If it goes down a whole lot, I'll show him my leftover pancake from breakfast. I don't know anything about that, of course. So Monday morning, my psychic calls up and says, okay, I'm ready. I said, well, at the end of the week, I'm going to put something in your hand. I don't know what it is, of course. Tell me what you're experiencing for next Friday morning, Friday afternoon. He'll say, well, I see something round. It's kind of floppy. has a funny smell. Actually, this thing is kind of disgusting. So I'll say, well, uh, I don't know what it is, of course, but that's a very nice, unusual description. Uh, I will call the broker, and we'll see what we're doing this week. So I'll tell John about this round, floppy thing with a funny smell. He'll say, well, that sounds like my leftover pancake from breakfast. Uh your psychic will see that only if silver goes down a lot. So based on the fact that a guy in Berkeley saw a leftover pancake, we would sell $30,000 worth of silver and then buy it back at a lower price at a later time. And that's a short sale. So it was entirely because of what the psychic saw that we determined what we're going to do in the market. Does that make sense? And we did that nine times in a row. The the psychic really didn't know what they were seeing. I mean, is it? No. The the psychic rarely knows what he's actually looking at. The psychic can... See, in the instructions that I give the psychic, I say, describe the surprising images that come into your awareness. And that's that's all the psychic can do. A psychic can't read, and he's very bad at naming. 
See, things don't actually have names. It's sort of a Buddhist idea about emptiness, which upsets people. The world is really empty. It's not empty of cups and saucers and books. It's empty of meaning, apart from the meaning we give it. So if I have an object for you to describe, uh, that object doesn't actually come with a name, has a name attached to it, and doesn't come with a meaning. We give it a meaning. So if I if I tell you I have an object here, uh, tell me the name of the object, uh, that's basically impossible. But if I say I have an interesting object in my hand here, uh, tell me about the object I'm holding in my hand. Don't name it, just tell me the interesting shape you see. Uh, you can do that quite well. So it's... Uh, it's the basic properties of the object you can describe. You can describe what it looks like and what it feels like, but you can't name it because naming is quite arbitrary. And then this was all understood in the 8th century. A great Buddhist teacher, Padmasambhava, wrote, wrote a book, a lot like my book. His book is called Self-Liberation Through Seeing with Naked Awareness. So if you can see with naked awareness, then you can move your own awareness from a life of defending your ego and your story, conditioned awareness. You can move that into spacious or timeless awareness. And one of the things you have to do is to, in order to accomplish that, is you have to give up defending your story. You also have to give up naming things. And if you can quiet your mind and do that, then you can move into spaciousness and have a and also shed your suffering. Is this a bit like uh, the vibrational uh, patterns of music or or anything on this order? See, I'm having a hard time hearing you. It's about vibrational. What? Is this? <clears throat> excuse me. Is this like a vibrational? Um, pattern for music when you are working with this? Do you see any aspects like this when you when you are um, doing your work? What you see is a shape in the... What comes into your awareness is the shape and the form of the thing you're trying to describe. You get shapes and forms and colors and by and by you might have the the texture and the weight or if you're looking at a place, you might be able to make a drawing. People are often quite successful making drawings of the distant place they're looking at. And we encourage them to do that. Remote viewing is really a two-person game. You have a viewer who's trying to quiet her mind to experience what's going on at the target site. And you have an interviewer who doesn't know the answer but who can be helpful to the viewer in describing the distant place. So I will keep saying, uh, what do you feel about this place? Uh, what does the air feel like? Uh, what do you see as you look around? Let's go inside. So we were once targeted working with Hella Hammett, the photographer. Uh, we were once targeted to describe Brezhnev's office in the Kremlin. This is in the about 1980. It's still still a Cold War is on. 
So uh, I sat with Hella in our dimly lit remote viewing room. And I said, well, Hella, today we're going to the Kremlin. We're going to visit Brezhnev's office. And I said, are you, are you ready to do that? And she said, yes, I'm walking down the this big hall right now. At the end of the hall, she said, uh, I see a large door has an arch over the door, and the door is covered with red leather, and the leather is held in place by brass upholstery tacks. So that's what she saw, and she made a sketch of that. And my job as a viewer is to say, well, that's very good. Let's go inside, and I'll open the door for you psychically. So we went inside, and then she said, oh, on the left side I see a window looking out over Red Square, and on the right is a big wooden desk covered with a big piece of glass. And, of course, I have no idea if that's correct or not. So I say, thank you very much. Is there anything else you see? And she said, well, behind the desk is a door set into the wall. I said, oh, good. Let's open the door and see where it leads. So we opened the door and we went downstairs into a computer room in the what's then the first floor of the Kremlin. So we spent an hour wandering around the Kremlin where Hello's describing me, describing to me what she sees, and I'm functioning as a kind of psychic travel agent. And that was my job for 10 years at SRI. So I spent 10 years sitting in the dark with people who wanted to do remote viewing, and I would lead them in quieting their mind and describing the images that show up in their awareness. That's so, almost like hypnosis. <laughs> well, the American Society for Hypnosis said that that sounds like hypnosis, and they laughed at me when I said there's no hypnosis involved. And they told me that what I consider the instructions, they would have considered induction. So the hypnotists agree with you. But I, have, of course, have no training in that. I'm just telling... My, my basic mission is to get people to tell me what you see. That, that's what I keep saying. They, okay, we're in an interesting place now. Tell me the images that appear in your awareness. So if you say, well, it looks to me like Macy's, I would say... No, don't tell me about Macy's. Tell me what you're experiencing uh, that makes you say Macy's. What do you, what's the actual experience? So I will always lead a viewer away from naming something. So the interesting thing is, there's my, I got a chance to spend 10 years sitting in the dark, and it's as though... My, my spiritual development was paid for by the CIA. It's a very unusual situation because what became clear to me is that we, the viewers and the teachers, could not possibly be just made of meat and potatoes, bodies and bones, because it's obvious that our awareness is independent of our physical body. People are sitting in the lab drinking coffee describing what's happening in Soviet Siberia or the hostages in Iran or a downed airplane in Africa. 
or a Chinese atomic bomb test. So people have no problem quieting their mind and describing what's going on in the distance or in the future. So it's obvious that we could not be uh, just a physical body. The, the, the Buddhists are very concerned about ending suffering. So if if you really want to suffer, then you'll think that who you are is what you see in the mirror every morning. You look in the mirror and say, well, that's me. Here I am again. And, of course, that's not you. That's just a picture of your body. Who you are is this timeless, non-local person who's probably eternal. And it's a much more inspiring to be than the image you see in the mirror in the morning. So what you're describing, um, can you actually go into a person, a body, to see how that body, like if you see a body in when you're viewing a person, can you go into that body and, and feel what they're feeling? Um, some people can do that. Uh, and remember, I'm just a straight-up physicist, so uh, I'm not an expert in knowing what other people are feeling. But what I have learned to do is intuitive diagnosis so that if somebody gives me a an envelope, what I was learning to do this, my housemate who is a psychic would give me an envelope with a card inside describing some person she knew. And my job was to hold the envelope and describe the physical situation or the emotional situation of that person. So I could say, well, one of the interesting cases I had, I said, this feels like a woman, sort of medium height and good shape, with short, dark hair. Uh, she seems depressed. I don't see anything the matter with her physically, but her left shoulder has some kind of arcing and sparking. I just never saw this before. It looked like there's electrical activity in her shoulder. That's what I see. I said, well, what, what do you think of that, Catherine? And Catherine said, that doesn't make any sense to me at all. I haven't seen this woman for a year, but I will try and find out how she's doing. So she called up her friend, who turns out is a professional tennis player that I didn't know, of course. And she had just had shoulder surgery and had a metal plate put in her shoulder because she had a rotator cuff repeated accident and they had to put a uh, a metal pin or a bit in her, probably a pin in her shoulder that I described. And what I presume that I was seeing is the electrical activity between the titanium pin in her shoulder and the rest of her musculature. So that, that was some my, my my guide didn't know the answer. I, of course, didn't know the woman. So this was all stimulated by my guide saying, tell me about the person on the card in the envelope. So I was able to just close my eyes and describe the pictures that came to me. 
So in order to do that, uh, one of the things I had done is I purchased the um, learning the set of DVDs from the learning company uh, that teaches anatomy and physiology. So I watched the 12 DVDs showing the insides of bodies. So if you're going to be able to do intuitive diagnosis, you should be able to tell the difference between a, a pancreas and a gallbladder. Otherwise, uh, it just looks like the meat market. You can't. You have to. See, some people do intuitive diagnosis describing chakras. Uh, the the two women who do this principally, Mona Lisa Schultz, wrote a nice book called Awakening Intuition, and Judith Orloff is also a psychiatrist wrote a book called Second Sight, and both of these psychiatrists, experienced doctors, have written books, and their approach is to describe imbalances in the colorful chakras. Uh, that's not what I do. I'm trained as a remote viewer and not as a doctor, so I tend to do my scan from the top of their head to the bottom of their feet and look for uh, surprising things in the physiology. So in this person, I went through her whole body, and the only thing I found surprising was the arcing and sparking in her left arm. But that's also easy to teach. In a workshop, for example, I will teach people to do remote viewing, and on the last day I teach them to do intuitive diagnosis. And they all agree that describing... Uh, the physiology of a distant person is much easier than doing remote viewing. So apparently the empathy connection between you and the distant person is greater than the empathy between you and my stuffed animal. So people are able to do that quite well. Have you ever uh, viewed a mechanical, like a car or Somebody doesn't know what's wrong with the car, and you've viewed it, and you could tell. Well, that's where an it's... interesting question. I, I have not done that. Uh, I'm not that experienced a viewer. My activity is, first of all, as a scientist, I'm trying to understand how remote viewing works, how it is we're trying to quiet our mind and describe. How do we learn to describe and experience what's going on in the future? So the idea that has come to us over the past, really, 20 years is the idea for modern physics called non-locality, which teaches that um, many things are connected to each other that we had previously thought were separated. So the idea of non-locality is not a metaphysical or a New Age idea, but the idea of non-locality is really the most important uh, discovery in modern physics, but the idea that things are separate or things are connected, that there's no separation, is an idea that Buddhists have been teaching for two millennia. Now, when you're viewing the future, is it possible to change? I mean, how can I ask this question? When you're going in and viewing the future of something that hasn't happened yet. And just by you viewing it, can the future be changed? Well, you can affect the future. You can, um, 
if you have a, it's a complicated question, that you can't change the past, that if you, uh, the future cannot change something that has already happened. But if you have a dream, for example, about being in an airplane crash, and you've flown hundreds and hundreds of times and never had an anxiety dream about a plane crash, and then tonight you have a dream about a plane crash, well, I would then change your plans. And that happened to a contract monitor of us. Uh, he was in Detroit ready to go on to the West Coast, and he had a very frightening dream about being in a plane crash that ended up in a ball of fire. So he told his partner with him that something's come up that he doesn't, he now won't be able to fly. In the CIA, you don't ask too many questions either. So he just drove his buddy to the airport, and as he drove away from the airport, he got to see the plane crash. And it crashed because of wind shear, air turbulence at the end of the runway. But our friend wasn't on it because of this frightening dream. So he was able to make use of the information in the dream to avoid being in the airplane crash. And lots of people did that on 9-11, uh, the day that the terrorists ran into the Twin Towers. There were four planes crashing that day, as you know. And each of those planes had less than a third the usual number of passengers. The so-called load factor was less than a third of its usual value. And that means that the, these are big airplanes normally carried 180, 200 people, and all of them had under 100 people in them. So on September 11th, hundreds of people all over America said, you know, this isn't a good day to fly. I think I changed my mind. So lots and lots of people either didn't show up or changed their plans from those planes that were destined to crash. So you can make use of information in your dream uh, to do something useful, save your life. Many people have the first psychic experience of their lives in a precognitive dream. And you can learn to separate out the dreams that are precognitive from the ones that are just wish fulfillment. See, many of our dreams involve uh, wish fulfillment or anxiety are dreams that are made of the previous day's residue, and those are not precognitive. Precognitive dreams are dreams that are unusual and uh, have unusual clarity. And you can learn to recognize this. A couple of days ago, I had a dream in which I was on the beach at Carmel in California, a beach I know well, very steep beach. And in that dream, the tide was coming in and forcing me to go higher and higher up the embankment. The tide was coming after me, pushing pushing me further and further up, up the embankment on the beach at Carmel. That was a dream. So I thought that was very unusual. I told my wife about that because that did not pertain to anything that I'm anxious about. It was just a very unusual dream pertaining to a place that we, best, that we both knew. And then opened the New York Times, which I look at every morning, 
And the story that caught my eye on the front page was about harnessing tidal power in Maine, putting in big turbines uh, on the seafloor just out of the Bay of Funday, which is in Nova Scotia, uh, to harness the tidal power. And my wife and I had both been to the Bay of Funday and seen their tidal machines, which are were, were not in place yet. But my dream on Monday night, I believe, was stimulated by reading this article in the newspaper on Tuesday morning. As we hadn't been to Nova Square in Nova Scotia ten years ago, there's no reason for me to dream about tidal power in the Northeast. But the story, which is quite interesting, about tidal power in a place that we knew stimulated my dream about Carmel. So that's Correct. how the future is able to affect the past. That is, the the 8 o'clock in the morning story was able to affect my dream at an earlier time. So physicists would call this a retrocausal event. The future is able to affect the past. That makes sense? Now, yes, it does. Now, you can't change the past. That is, if I got up and said, I had a sleepless night, I have no dreams at all, what do you think is the matter, no dreams, nothing that I could read the next day would make me have a dream that I didn't have. So you can't cause something to occur, or you can't change what's already occurred, but the future can stimulate something at an earlier time. Do you journal your dreams? I do not. But if I tell people, um, I don't journal my dreams, but I remember my dreams. So I tell people in workshops who are interested in learning to get in touch with their precognitive dreams that it's very important to journal them. You, you know that people, um, that those people who don't do teach. That I know the right thing to do if you're interested in doing it but I don't actually do it myself. There's Carl Jung in his great book, Dreams, Memories, and Reflections, says that if you want to get in touch with your dream life, you should write down your dream before you get up in the morning or move any big muscles or go to the bathroom. Write down the dream right after it occurred, and then you'll see that it sometimes occurs later that day. Uh, back to remote viewing, uh, does the military, uh, do they still use the remote viewing? I hope so, uh, but to the best of my knowledge, there is not presently any psychic research or remote viewing going on in the government. Our program ended in 1995. Um, um, the Secretary of Defense, Robert Gates, was on television talking to my friend Ed May. He said the program has ended both at SRI and at the CIA. That America no longer have any enemies, so we don't need a psychic corps anymore. So September 1995 was the end of our program. And it has always required courageous and intelligent people to support the program in the military. And 
uh, I think we're running out of courageous, intelligent people in the government. To the best of my knowledge, there's no remote viewing going on. It's always possible that there's a secret program in the basement of the Pentagon that I don't know about. But to answer your question, I don't know of any ESP in the government presently. Well, you would think that would help them uh, locate the telephone. Tele- tele- I, I think that would be a good idea. Because they they can't find them. They're in the caves. So I would think it would be a good idea. One thing, of my friends, anyway. Stephen Schwartz, ran a project to find uh, Osama bin Laden and described very accurately what it looked like where he would be found. So it can be done. We found a lot of interesting things. We found a downed... uh, A Russian airplane crashed in northern Africa with a reconnaissance plane with code books and all sorts of secret Russian information. And we were asked to find that. We had a contest to see who could find it, the Russians or ourselves. And uh, Joe McMonagall was one of the people that I taught from the Army, Army Intelligence was able to uh, find that airplane, and our ground forces were able to find it before the Russians. And we even got a commendation from Jimmy Carter for having done that. I would think that the Russians also do remote viewing. Well, the Russians had done laboratory remote viewing in the 80s. I was in Russia and visited um, the city of Yerevan in South Russia, but they were doing it at a university. They had all these cheerful Armenian students learning to do remote viewing, but in the government lab, they were not so successful. We wrote a paper in 1976 that was translated into Russian that stimulated their interest but it's hard to make somebody be psychic in a dictatorship. Uh, you can do it in the university, but it's hard to make them do it in the military. So their remote viewing, their applied remote viewing, we now know was not so successful. Though the remote viewing that I saw in the lab in Yerevan would look just like ours. So I thought that was interesting. So if people want to learn to do this, uh, in my new book, The Reality of ESP, I describe what we had done for the government and show lots of pictures of our, when we were working, we we were actually the X-Files for 20 years. So in The Reality of ESP, in my new book, I, I show what we had done, and I have a chapter describing how people can learn to do that, how you can find a friend and then work with that person uh, to get in touch with your psychic awareness. Learn what it feels like to be psychic. And people can do that readily. They'll have a very good time at workshops showing people how to do that. And if you want to play with me next week, I'm going to be at the Omega Institute, upstate New York, and that's on my website. My website is ESPResearch.com. And if people write to me, I'm always happy to answer letters that people write to me at ESP Research. Oh, great. Uh, Russell, I have a question for you. Uh, you've done some songwriting. And uh, do you still do I've done that? A lo- I've done a little songwriting. I, I had a 
girlfriend at one point who lived in Nashville, and I was help, I was working with her producing records. So I, I spent a few years in the in the music business in Nashville, but I would not be known as a songwriter. <laughs> it sounds like fun, though. Yes, it was a very nice adventure. <laughs> And I also see that you uh, received two National Aeronautics and Space Administration Awards for inventions. And yes, I, I'm basically known as a laser person. That is, I did the first 15 years of my research was as a laser pioneer developing lasers. And then I, after the ESP program at Stanford, I spent another dozen years at Lockheed putting lasers on airplanes to help prevent them from running into wind shear. So my principal career has been as a laser guy working largely for NASA. And then in between times, I spent a dozen years at Stanford Research Institute teaching people how to do psychic, how to be psychic, and that's what I'm doing now. That's a different kind of laser process there. Well, in both cases... Now, that's my telephone. In in both cases, uh, you're able you're able to use your ability to see what no one has seen before. So, so the goal is to quiet your mind and see into the distance and see into the future. And we can learn to do that. So you had to have permission from the CIA to um, to release all of this, and and I published my permission letter. That I, I went through um, the uh, request form to get, to get permission to publish all this, and I you know, actually had a lengthy lawsuit. And eventually, under Freedom of Information, I got permission to do it. So it cost you a little to get this book out. <laughs> well, the, the book was published by Quest Books, the Theosophical Society. So you can take a look at that on Amazon, Reality of ESP, and you can see what I've been up to. Well, it sounds we like you... Uh, go ahead. I was going to say, we need to let people know also they have the capability of downloading that ESP trainer on their Apple. That is really cool. Yeah, you can download my ESP game called ESP Trainer, and that's my little gift for you. And top of the hour now, so I think that uh, I want to thank you very much for the opportunity to chat with you. And if you or your listeners want to communicate with me, please write to me at ESPResearch.com. Thank you very much for letting me chat with you for this hour. Oh, thank you very much. Uh, You're a very interesting guest. Thank you for being with us.